Hello and welcome. My name is Kevin Martin, and today I wanted to talk about a new article I just wrote on my website at www.conjunctio.co.uk, and it's called 15 Narcissistic Traits. And I thought today I would think about developing some new aspects of traits. There's millions of people out there with different ideas of narcissistic traits and how they work and how they affect us all when we come up against the narcissist, but they can come about in a several different um, manifestations and interpretations, and they're never as simple as black and white. So today I wanted to start at just some of the basics. Uh, my first heading is this idea of perfectionism. So we all know that the narcissist is very, very fixated on the image, how people perceive them, and how they look and present themselves to the world. So first of all, I wanted to look at the example of what we call perfect mirroring. So the narcissist demands perfect mirroring of their grandiose self, the self they've set up, the one they've created, the one they use as defense against parental failures, in the treatment leading to feelings of emptiness and helplessness. So the narcissist, to avoid feeling in this despair and constant feeling of meaningless, they have constructed a false self. This narcissist self-object, as in the parents, needs were not met during childhood, as in the self-object couldn't look after the child's narcissistic, healthy narcissism in terms of being able to grow feeling okay to express itself, uh, assert themselves, and go against the judgments of the parent. So these mechanisms never develop, and they will continue to look for others, other self-objects, for buttressing their self-esteem. So continuous need for admiration, um, validation, and assurance from external objects. They create what is called a mirror-hungry personality, hungry for narcissistic supply, as in admiration and idolization, actively seeking out ways to fulfill these unmet needs. They evoke special attention from others to counteract their inner lack of self-esteem by being highly accomplished, competitive, strong, and perfect. So again, this is this image they've created where they've learned a way, adaptation, which works for them in the world. So again, we've touched on this idea of the grandiose self where they feel superior because they have high standards, standards in terms of their, their ideas of morality and intellect, where it enables them to look down on others, to feel superior because of these accomplishments based on the expectations of the idolized parent or the construction of the grandiose self. They believe they are omnipotent and unique, someone who deserves special treatment and the admiration of others. However, this arrogance and contempt is sometimes hidden, generally out of their own conscious awareness behind a polished friendliness and concern. So again, a lot of people think of the narcissist as being this exuberant exhibitionist or something we can all see, something we're all going to be able to obviously um, perceive in somebody. 
but there's much more polished, sophisticated versions of narcissism and the grandiose self, which is much harder to detect and to see. And it's normally only within very uh, intimate relationships or tight work situations where some of this manifestation may start to develop. So the other thing, if you're ever working with people who narcissism has collapsed or their idolized self has collapsed, where they don't really have the so-called structural strength of the classic narcissist, you realize there's actually a very diffuse fragility running underneath this structure, dominated by a very harsh inner critic who is very hostile, aggressive, and punitive towards the child who's not holding up to the standards of their grandiosity. They can therefore dismiss, devalue, and discard any external threats to the false self. Anybody who manifests this envy, this Pavlovian envy they carry in themselves about others, regardless of any personal history with the other person. So this is the other thing. If you actually come into contact with someone like this, the classic splitting, it's, uh, it's unbelievably confusing to see how they can just give up on a relationship on a whim. Just click of a finger and just, you could, you could be the perfect person for two, three years, two, three months. You could be this idolized person working with them and then on a whim, you could make one infraction and then they decide, that's it, you're off, you're gone. And then also out of mind is out of sight, which is also out of existence because of the splitting mechanism. They don't, they're unable to hold representations of other people if you're not within their immediate vicinity. Therefore, any imperfections, failures, between this grandiose self is projected onto the outside world. And you are the person who carries these failures and imperfections because how can they have any imperfections if they're so brilliant and omnipotent? So without establishing true empathy, what we call object consciousness and mutual subjectivity, which is a real biggie once you understand it, as in you are only able to comply and conform to their subject subjectivity, their opinions, their ideas, how they see the world, and they totally neglect or negate your contradictory versions of events or the world. They therefore develop an inner self-hatred towards any weakness, vulnerability, or archaic needs needs for love, needs for affection, needs for the other, and any feelings beyond which the grandiose self has created or mimics. The quick critical parent hated the child's weakness. The parent, probably narcissistic themselves, or unable to hold and contain the child's assertiveness and exuberance installs the inner harsh self-critic. 
and also therefore setting unachievable expectations, which the child constantly, constantly be trying to manifest, create, to achieve in this constant battle of they'll get to a certain place. It's not perfect. It's not brilliant. It's not the ultimate goal. The child sort of gives up, collapses, goes into a circle of self-content, hates himself, may calm down, and then may take a long while again before they try again to reach the expectations of this inner critic. And this can this can be a life-fulfilling prophecy. It's something that can go on forever and ever and ever because the child is held into a toxic loyalty bond with the parent. The child has failed to separate in terms of what Margaret Mailer tells the separation individuation stage and is stuck somewhere between the individuation and reproachment stage, whereby the child, because of the hostility or abandonment, has stopped and, and frozen and now is paralyzed within that journey of moving away from the parent, normally the mother, into what we call a more healthy state or self through the journey of individuation. So the next thing which most people do understand and look at, talk a lot about narcissists, maybe more borderlines, but once the narcissistic grandiose self does start to break down, we can start to see that the narcissist actually has very poor impulse control. And that is manifested normally by poor boundaries. If you ever work with somebody who's very codependent or been with a narcissist, the relationship is normally fused or merged via the lack of boundaries. One, unable to install boundaries to create space because of their fears of abandonment and their own lack of self-esteem. And the other, who has no idea or concept of boundaries, who just continually intrudes <coughs> into the other's world because they only see others as an extension of themselves. So again, due to poor parenting, the narcissist develops what we call diffuse boundaries, as in they're fragile, they're not clarified, they're uh, um, unstable. So normally contrasting between an enmeshment, as in a fusion, emotional incest or abandonment by the participating parent. So the child is constantly in the flux between being treated as a grandiose, brilliant self, maybe when the parent wants to show them off to their friends or others and talk about their great achievements, which they own and don't allow the child to own, or basically abandon the child when the child maybe wants to be soothed or is feeling weak or vulnerable and the parent despises that within the child. So the fluctuating extremities between libidinal and aggressive tensions generated such an ambivalence, rejecting unsafe and hostile environment, which distorts ego development and the capacity for impulse control. So as you can imagine, if you're in this fluctuating ambivalent environment, all your energy and intellect and um, behavior is going in to try and 
form some sort of some stability within the environment, which then doesn't go towards the healthy ego structure development of developing uh, a soothing parent, uh, someone who can delay gratification, and, or somebody who can just be with the child for no reason other than just having to be with the child. So again, this forms the concept of the there's no nurturing parent. So this can also go for the codependent as well as the narcissist. And I'm talking about a narcissist who is struggling to hold on to his grandiose self, not, not the one who's actively working in society, the structure's solid and isn't starting to break down. So when we look beyond the narcissist, we can actually see they can't self-soothe or regulate their emotions. So no one was there to protect them or soothe them during their distress and anxiety. So what they do and they've done is formulated this idolized parental imago in terms of what cohort says, and then basically that's fused with the grandiose self into what he calls the nuclear self. So the child is constantly trying to work to this ego ideal this idolized parent has created um, and that works as long as external factors and events work in alignment with these images anything out of the blue or anything that brings uh, a lack of control starts causing distress and uh, fragmentation within the narcissist so again the inability to delay gratification and tolerate frustrations. Again, like a generational passing down of the buck where narcissists breed narcissists, breed codependence, where there's no emotional development or understanding to the greater good, where they can create the structures to be able to delay gratification. So you can also see within the sports world, or especially now in social media and um, the world show business celebrity, where there's this constant need for excitement, adrenaline, sexual gratification, which increases, unbeknown to them, their risk of vulnerability, exploitation, and coercion. The narcissist is blind to the outside world it lives in its own internal fantasy and all it's doing all they're doing is bringing people into the internal fantasy and playing it out so they have no concept of the idea of witnessing themselves within the world so everyone is a gratifying object who fulfills their grandiose grandiosity one-dimensional black and white an extension of themselves with the same values and beliefs and ideas. Which, when broken, leads to an intrusion of split-off emotions which can lead to overwhelm, the, the core sense of shame, which is defended against the utmost cost, is poked and brought to, to the narcissist's awareness, awareness, which leads to fragmentation, which then can lead to addictions, compulsive behaviors, to numb such experiences. 
again we can see this in many people that's why i call it traits because i'm not specifically talking about the narcissistic structure the one which is much more um, solid strengthened where as long as you're going along with societal demands in terms of achieving power status and perfection the, the narcissist normally won't get to this stage where it's, it's needing uh, a nurturing parent, as in the whole thing's fixed, where they're not necessarily soothing themselves, but they are exerting their energy in this continuous like uh, battery, which keeps recharging itself with this pursuit of goals and status based on the ego ideal so the other thing which codependence or anyone who has a long-term relationship with the narcissist will soon pretty much realize that the narc doesn't suffer from guilt because the other is, is interjected as part of a few state when the other person is the other person is not perceived as as a separate entity so the only thing that other impacts on the narcissist is their version their idolized version of the and if you're not admiring it that's when in a way if you're observing this you you feel like you're in a relationship with the narcissist but ultimately once you've gone and you're out of sight and the narcissist no longer has any value for you they do not perceive any guilt because they haven't developed this idea of object constancy where, for instance, if the parent goes away, the child, a very young child, believes the parent's gone away forever and then comes back and reinteracts and goes away and comes back. And over time, the child develops the idea that the parent, even though they're away, has another life somewhere else with other people, but will come back at some point but the narcissist because they have been unable to tolerate the parent going away in the first place or not being attuned to by the parent has created an interject an image of a parent which is constantly available constantly there so the idea of the other doesn't really exist which then means they don't really have to feel fulfill any guilt and then the next stage, if we talk about proper object relationships, we end up into the idea is we end up feeling guilty because of our impact on the parent. How we impact our parent through our aggression, being angry with them, and then being okay to deal with the guilt the child infuses in themselves for causing others pain. And this has to normally remedied with a nurturing parent who is, is, is there to contain and hold the child's anger while not abandoning the child and frustrating the child and leaving the child, hence allowing the child or developing the child to split off its anger and love and what we talk about keeping the idolized object in place. As we work through guilt, as we work through the idea of our assertiveness and anger, we can then develop what we call true empathy and care and concern for the other because we realize 
it's okay. A healthy relationship is where each other frustrates each other. Each other will be angry with each other. Each other will not live in this childlike state of fantasizing in a childlike manner of the other. We end up into real personal dynamics where love, hate, love, anger, aggression, care are all part of the dynamics within a healthy relationship where each other stays and doesn't abandon the other or become rejecting, discarding, or dismissive of the other to the extent the relationship ends. So again, this is very important because a narcissist and even a codependent doesn't learn this because even the codependent doesn't really separate from the other. It ends up again trying to cling and immerse themselves within the other as so it ends up in what we call a symbiotic relationship where there isn't really any other present and any form of separation creates anxiety within the codependent. And that's why they're so attracted to narcissists because the narcissist offers the, um, the availability to fuse with them, which unconsciously the codependent is probably seeking to a certain extent. So the next trait is what I've highlighted as sex without emotional investment. Now, this is one we're all very used to in terms of narcissists, people with narcissistic traits, philanthropists, um, you know, sex addicts. So we talk about the narc being arrested at the sexual idolization phase of the self-object, the parent whereby sexually fused aggression distorts this ego development. This intense repressed aggression operates as infantile libido, libido expressed within the erogenous zones with the fascination with body parts such as the breast, penis, or vagina. So the child ends up fixated on body parts. Again, not seeing the person as a whole, that may be the body part what create what gives the child instant gratification for the archaic needs of contact or fulfillment and can end up fixating on these body parts if the ego is arrested. So again, the pleasure in these zones is due to distorted drive orientations in terms of when you're getting into Freudian, um, philosophy around the libido, aggression, hostility. Again, these drives are distorted. They haven't fully developed. They've been arrested at infantile. So, and they also then become hostile and self-destructive behaviors whereby the child or the person as an adult may end up into voyeurism, some sort of sexual perversion, sadomasochism, and compulsory masturbation maybe as a means to fulfill these archaic needs which haven't been uh, neutralized, which haven't been diffused into more mature ways of expressing themselves because the parent or the environment hasn't been available to, uh, to one, meet their archaic needs, to tolerate the archaic aggression or libido or, or thrust for sexual satisfaction in terms of sucking on the breast, feeding, just contact, feeling the, the bodily skin of the parent, a hug, simple things like that, more mature uh, 
recognition of affection, the child ends up with very distorted views of the opposite sex, same sex, but fixated on body parts which which offer the satisfaction for these archaic needs. So the next thing is what I've called object love, where love, our concept of love, is basically fixated on these body parts, where I love this person because they have, they look fantastic, they have great breasts, or uh, I love their body. So there's no more in-depth uh, understanding of the person. The love is based on the object gratification, sexual gratification of attaining the object. So again, conquered sex objects are expected to be constantly available for this need gratification. True intimacy would mean having to acknowledge the other, to be vulnerable within the relationship, within the sexual act, where again, then performance, and emotional investment become aspects of this dynamic. So we 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 can see now within the world where more and more people are invested in hookups, short-term relationships, no real long-term development of relationship where one learns to love the other person in greater depth other than the way they look or how they initially keep stimulating some of them archaic needs until people break out of this arrested development which at the moment doesn't seem very likely because society is encouraging or rewarding such behavior, it can only really continue or repress even more to a greater extent where people just are not going to be able to hold any form of relationship together at all. And it will just be sexual acts with or without a partner in some form or another. So again, we realize we can see this idea of high levels of promiscuity, seeking out multiple partners without guilt or remorse for the other, other's feelings or consequences of their actions. The narc has not learned due to the lack of impact, recognition of impact or availability of the other has not been really established the full dynamics of a healthy relationship. There's no consequences for their actions, normally because the other's just uninterested. The parent was uninterested or unable to punish or reward the child for good or bad behaviours. Now, this is one I didn't really, I, I thought was very interesting when I first started to look at it. This is the idea they possess an unconscious desire to transform and disavow all love with the wish to eliminate gender and generations of differences to deny envy, difference, and separation. Now, the narc, because of the lack of differentiation, does not really see the difference between 
a child, a teenager, or an adult in terms of we're talking about perversion aspects. We're talking about not every narc, but this idea colour, gender, age, sex. If they get rid of it, it basically for them, it, it, it creates a safer world where they can be less envious or um, needing to defend this grandiose image of themselves if they create or totally disavow the other. So the, the other thing that's important is the aggression succeeds the, the libidinal investment and relationship. Depending on, again, the structure or the trait of the narcissist. You could argue that the codependent or uh, this idea of the inverted narcissist may have more libidinal investment, maybe constantly trying to please or keep the narcissist happy and basically split off their aggression away from the relationship. So the other thing which I think isn't really touched a lot on, especially in the narcissistic world, where, you know, there's commonplace ideas of gaslighting, denial, splitting, all these traits, familiar traits. I just wanted to touch on something a bit different for me, which is very important, especially, especially into the context of the world we're living in today, where a lot of people are confused. Um, you know, I'm amazed that I understand people you know, this constant idea that they're brainwashed or uh, they lack uh, critical thinking. But again, this this all then comes back down to this concept of if, if a person is emotionally arrested, they do not create, they do not mature into a, a moral human being. So if we were to say a high moral compass encompasses the ability to incorporate the experiences of others into our own decision-making and the crux of moral reasoning, we can then say that that doesn't exist in the narcissist world. The, the narc operates at an infantile level of morality. The, the narc believes they operate all aspects of their lives with excellence, fairness, duty, and therefore believe they're entitled to special treatment which then creates this virtuous image of themselves, as in, look how moral I am, because I'm so compliant, dutiful, and excellent in everything I do, which is so one-dimensional because, again, it's not taking into account that the thing or person or workplace or something might be morally corrupt. And just because you're being dutiful to it doesn't allow you this idea to, to express this virtual mora virtuous morality, which you know we get this a lot now within the world. It's a sort of virtual signaling, you know, this great image of myself. Look at me, but they never question the person actually allowing them to be virtuous and why. And could there be other underlying uh, reasons to why they want these people to comply? Could there be another goal which? is outside the awareness of the narcissist because it's fulfilling their needs on such a fundamental level. So again, we see this idea that they become their own lawmaker. Their success, the admiration of others is proof of this virtuous nature. Look how many people think I'm great. 
look how many people think I'm I'm somebody who is has the ability to create laws and determine the progression of society. Therefore, all these old social norms or regulations don't apply to me. And I, I can create my own laws and new ideas which will fundamentally benefit the rest of society based on my infantile perception of the world. So the NARC generally tends to operate on what I call an eye-to-eye judgment basis, this classic retaliation where, you know, you're only, you're only kept around a narcissist as long based on your last interaction. And it has to be a good one, an eye for an eye, this idea, you know, if you're bad towards me, I'll be bad towards you. If you did me a good deed, I might do you a good deed. So they are constantly condemning others for any transgressions, and especially for lack of law. And this idea of creating a relative subjective moral compass based on their archaic needs and fundamental beliefs of how others should operate to fulfill these needs. So again, the other one which I think is important is this idea of lack of integrity. As they operate within their own bubble and fantasy, they do not develop the need to do consciously good deeds and see the bigger picture for social cohesion. Maybe having to sacrifice our clinic needs for the greater good. So in theory, they don't develop a mature adult morality of daily routines or personal commitments to others around them where they may be fulfilling personal contracts and I suppose a personal conscious conscience of taking on board what others may do or think or feel based on all your actions, which then will create this idea of a personal integrity, uh, a more mature, developed sense of self, one based on experience and impacting others and feedback from others where we may adjust or alter our behaviors because of this feedback and because of we can see how some of our actions cause others distress and not based on this subjectivity where I don't really care what others think or feel or how they see me negatively. That's not true because I'm so important and grandiose. So the next thing is what I like to call, they have no continu continuity of self. And there's a little tagline there. So they, they, they confabulate in terms of they make up memories, they make up stop gaps, plugins, where uh, to compensate for the yawn, yawning gaps within the stories they tell people on a daily basis. So this idea of false memories, 
Narcissists deny, split, and disassociate, erase memories because of their contact with the outside world and others is via a fictional construct, construct, this false grandiose self. Narcissists never really experience reality directly, but through a distorted lens of good and bad objects. So again, interjects, cardboard cutouts, the bad object is cast off, never really allowed to impact them or alter this grandiose image. Uh, people they like are extensions of themselves. They have the same beliefs, same ideas. They're going to do the same things. They're going to be dutiful towards a narcissist. Bad objects, who cares? They're weak. They, they're, they're envious. They're jealous. Basically, all, all the inner pathology is projected onto the other. So this idea where they will delete any information, a belief, an opinion, which will challenge the grandiose self. And, and what they don't do will change the narrative they've constructed to explicate, explain, excuse, and legitimize this antisocial, self-centered, exploitative behavior based on their choices and we call idiosyncrasies but their quirks their inner their inner things that allow themselves to get away with which others may not so again this is really really important to grasp especially if you've been with a narcissist for any sort of long-term basis because this is the thing i think sometimes gets uh, misconstructed around gaslighting where the stories just don't add up. The plugins don't add up. And if the deterioration of the other in relation to them has gone to a certain extreme, the other starts believing the stop gaps and plugins because they've lost all sense of their own continuity of self, which then allows to just um, co collusion into the narcissist world where the other would then do their own confabulation to try and create some sort of uh, sense to what they're being told. So again, at the next stage I've called what I've called invented timelines. They invent plausible short-term experiences and scenarios of how things might, could, or should have gone. To outsiders, these fictional stop gaps change are never consistent, causing confusion and disorientation. Again, so this leads to uh, a fragmented sense of self in the other. But the narcissist, unfortunately, <laughs> believes his, his own stories. He has to, because he's grandiose, he's omnipotent. Why would he not believe what he's saying? But surely this could not have happened any other way. So you could have three or four people telling him a different story based on their experience of an event, and he would still deny it. He would still tell them that all wrong because it has to meet up to the expectations and values and beliefs of the grandiose self. So these tenuous, concocted stoppages are also frequently revised. This is another thing which is fascinating to observe if you're in a relationship with someone with narcissistic traits because they fit new narratives and timeframes to fit their new timeframes and narratives. 
So the whole thing can just keep evolving and evolving and evolving where one week they will tell you, I went to the shop and I bought um, I bought certain groceries. And then next week, no, I went to the pub and I did this instead. So they're constantly altering the timeframes and narrative to fit in to where there's a threat they may be exposed to the truth. So as we know, they're full of contradictions whereby one storyline yesterday's or the weeks before will and can negate today's. So if you're on the, if you're observing this and witnessing this, you can imagine that over time you just don't know what day of the week it is and what are they going to say next? I can't I can't get them to even think about sitting in the truth. I can't get them to even think about understanding how much they contradict themselves because ultimately it's all irrelevant. Unfortunately, the narcissist isn't interested. You then become a bad object. Somebody over time, they will look to replace and dismiss. So finally, the 15th trait is what we I've called object constancy, classic uh, object relational concept of object constancy. Because they don't remember previous tales because they're not invested with their emotions and cognitions. And therefore, integral parts of real memories and therefore the integral parts of the real memories are not installed they're not time stamped with experience they just live in this present day-to-day minute-to-minute experience where because they're not emotionally invested it, it just becomes like a continual timeline of Nothing precedes the present timeline, if that makes sense. There's no historical context to what they're doing. And this is one of the things to work with, with maybe called codependence or narcissists when you're uh, working with them in therapy, is to start giving historical context to events and experiences. And that's when you'll start to see the stopgaps and plugins and how a lot of the world doesn't make sense. But over time, if you can get them to start increasing the historical context, more and more memories will start to come back in into the world, which then you can explore and experience. So they would tell the same story over and over again and expect and demand the same novel experience from the other and who has to, has to believe in the novelty. So anyone who's been out with a narcissistic parent, especially maybe at a family function, you can see, you can normally remember after two or three drinks, the parent will start telling stories. And the same people will be there, exactly the same uh, observers, and they would they tell the same story over and over again. You may have heard it 10, 15, 20 times. It may be slightly fabricated, maybe changed a bit slightly, but ultimately it's going to be the same story. And then they're sitting there waiting for everyone to applaud and clap. And if you normally look around the table, most people have been conditioned to do so and not to sit there and go, look, we've heard this story before. Why, Why are we having to hear it over and over again? So, again, without historical timelines, different timelines, the idea that the good and the bad objects basically don't interact 
are not part of the same timeline, they become very disjointed. Whereby, for instance, this could be the bad object and this could be the good object. And then it'd be like a sine wave where they're not together linked. It'd be like that, there'd be a gap, then it'd be the bad time, gap, gap. So both timelines will have, will have missing parts which don't interact and have no awareness of each other. Which again, if you're on the back end of this, is it? It's mine. It will drive your mind insane because none of it makes sense. So just to end, this idea, as you can imagine, because the object isn't constant, because their time frame isn't constant, the idea of the object being constant is basically highly diminished or not present at all. Therefore, they cannot tolerate ambivalence, conflicts or any absences within the relationship. So, you know, you hear stories of narcissists going mad when a partner isn't readily available, where have you been, distrust them, paranoia. Again, because they're not, they're not able to hold the object in place when the object isn't there. Or also they're not able to tolerate uh, the negative, frustrating object which has been split off or discarded or and no longer exists. The object is just there to admire and acknowledge their greatness, basically, as a so-called, I was going to say a separate entity, but ultimately not just somebody there to uh, look after their archaic needs. So I would just like to thank you all for listening. Um, you can contact me at www.conjunctio.co.uk or at hashtag conjunctio.uk. And anyone who feels they are in a narcissistic relationship or maybe someone's got narcissistic traits or somebody feels like they may have their own narcissistic traits, are more than welcome to contact me. And I offer a free 15-minute, 20-minute consultation to see if we can work together and see if there's something we can work towards in terms of getting to a better place where we have a, a more healthy and balanced outlook going forward. So thanks again. I hope the PowerPoint has helped. I'm going to post it on my website with the PowerPoint slides and the article. So hopefully I will see you soon. Thank you.